to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, crisis management, COVID, well-being, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fulick there, so I'm really easy to find and I respond to everything I get. One quick announcement, I will be speaking at the Continuity Insights Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, April 25th to 27th. So I hope to see many of you there and uh, maybe we can get you on the show as well. Longtime listeners on Voice America or viewers on YouTube will know that I love to read. I always have two, three books on the go at any given time and I learn for Uh, like to read for learning purposes and just entertainment purposes. Right now in our industry, the business continuity industry or resilience industry really overall, there's a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion. And I came across a book that I really enjoyed and knew that once I read it, I had to get the author here. The book is Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right. And I'd like to welcome to the show today, Michael Bach. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. How are you today? I know we talked about before uh, we went on air, but uh, how are you doing today? I'm great. You know, the sun is shining. Uh, it's uh, as, as I keep saying, I'm COVID great um, <laughs> to keep it relative. But no, life is good. I can't complain. Good. Now, I obviously, I've read your book and I've read your bio, but just in case anybody doesn't know who Michael Bach is, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got into what you do? Sure. So I am the CEO of CCDI Consulting, which is a consulting firm that provides management consulting in the areas of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. I have been working in this space for 15 plus years. We're just stopping at the plus at that point. Uh, having been the former head of diversity for KPMG's operations in Canada and the deputy chief diversity officer for KPMG International. And I was also the CEO of the Canadian Center for Diversity and Inclusion, which is an organization that I founded. Um, But in my life, I've been doing this work for over 30 years. I'm gay and I've been very active in the LGBTQ2 plus communities for over 30 years. And, and frankly, I was my background is in IT, and uh, I spent most of my career working in that space and was in the IT consulting practice at KPMG when the, oper- the opportunity presented itself to write a business case in uh, diversity and inclusion. And I jumped at it. It just seemed like the sort of merger of my profession and passion, and uh, I, I didn't look back. And hence the book. It's the book. It's only, is it a year old? I don't think it's a year old. It is a year old. Yes, it is. It's a year and four months. We're going to talk about that business case uh, topic that you brought up. But first, let's jump into something that you really start off at the beginning of the book, telling us about making clear definitions. And I got to tell you, some of these definitions and the words that you have in your book, I've not come across when other people talk about them. So I I think that's one thing that really touched me about the book is, wow, this is more than just what some people think it is. So I'd like to go through a couple of those definitions with you. And if you could clarify for us what they actually mean. Absolutely. So let's start with the first obvious word, diversity. What is that? Sure. Yeah. So diversity is about, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means different. It doesn't mean different from. Diversity is about the things that make us unique. Historically, when we talk about diversity, we talk about women, we talk about people of color, we talk about indigenous people or Native Americans, uh, we talk about people with disabilities. The visual stuff, right? 
the visual stuff. That is really more about representation. That's about ticking boxes. And when you, there's a, a great model from a book called Workforce America, and they call it the wheel of diversity, which I think sounds like a game show. So we call it the dimensions of diversity and it's a wheel. And it helps us to understand the complexity of the conversation that we are made up of the sum of a lot of different parts. And it's import another important factor around this word called diversity is that it includes straight, white, able-bodied men because by nature, they are different. They're different from me. I'm gay and I live with a disability. I'm not talking about marginalization and underrepresentation. Those two things are very real and that's a different conversation. But when you talk about diversity, it's about all of the things that make us unique. Well, let, let's go to the next one, inclusion, because a lot of people tend to you know, combine the two words, but inclusion is different. It is different. Inclusion is simply put about including all of the difference. It's, a, it's not enough to acknowledge the difference. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure that you're creating space where that difference can not only exist, but it can, it can thrive. So it's about creating spaces. It can be workplaces. It can be communities where that difference is not only tolerated, but welcomed. Hmm. Uh, the next one I thought was rather interesting too. Equality versus equity. Sure. So there's a famous tweet, famous in my world, but uh, a, a tweet that said that equality is like giving everyone a shoe. Equity is giving everyone a shoe that fits. And that was sort of summed it all up for me. Equality is about treating everyone the same. It's about expecting that every single person has the same needs and wants. Equity is about treating people how they need to be treated. And it's about understanding that as an example, as far as I understand it, women make babies. Men are there, but not for long. Women do the heavy lifting. So why then will we treat men and women the same when men don't have the ability to go into labor? That's simplistic, a simplistic example. And of course, it, it feeds into stereotypes about all women having babies and biology and that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. the point being that we need to treat people how they need to be treated as opposed to treating everyone the same. Does the... The quote, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you come into play there? Yeah. Or is that kind of really wishy-washy? No, no, I think it's, you know, we often define it as the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule. Every religion on the planet has some version of the golden rule. Treat others how you want to be treated. The platinum rule is, as we like to say, an upgrade to treat others how they want to be treated. If you follow the golden rule, you make the assumption that the others want to be treated the way you are treated. That's not a good assumption. It's not a safe assumption. So it's about making sure that we recognize the individuality of each person and treat them how they need to be treated. That, that makes sense because we're always saying everyone is an individual. Everyone is their own person. So how can you expect everything to be the same for everybody? Absolutely. Hmm. The next one is accessibility. Sure. So accessibility is probably what most people expect it to be. It's about access and it tends to be about accessibility for people who have disabilities. So as an example, if your office, if your church, if your community center has steps to get into it, it's not accessible. If your building doesn't have an elevator, it's not accessible. But there is so much more to accessibility than simple physical accessibility. There's accessibility for people with uh, visual impairments. There's accessibility for people with hearing or audio impairments. There's accessibility for religion, where as an example in, the, in Canada and the United States, there are two statutory holidays that are based on religion, Christmas and Easter. There's a whole massive population that don't celebrate those dates. Mm -hmm. And accessibility is about not going 
around the law. You can't do that. It's up to the politicians to fix the law, but about creating space where we acknowledge differences of need, the equity piece, and we make it so that people from different religions can celebrate their own holidays as opposed to being forced to celebrate holidays. Mm -hmm. So access can go a long, a long way past the physical, uh, but generally speaking, when we talk about accessibility, it's for people with disabilities. I, I like the, the part about religion there because I, I noticed over the years, which I actually enjoy when it happens, um, people in the office are celebrating Diwali or um, some other holidays, and it actually feels nice to be a part of those. Sure. You know, uh, Chinese New Year comes along and all of a sudden I come into the office and there's this little red box with a bow on it, a gift. And it's mm -hmm. like, wow, thanks for including me, you know, in your holiday. And when Christmas comes around, I do the same thing with them. Like, hey, I want to include you in my holiday. You know, and it really Absolutely. makes for, a, you know, a fun, uh, inclusive time, you know, to, to use the word here. <laughs> yeah. And I think the important thing there, we, we have very much swung the politically correct pendulum away from saying the evil Christmas word. And I fundamentally disagree with that. Christmas mm -hmm. is a holiday. It's celebrated by Christians. The only thing that we really need to be aware of is that there's others that don't celebrate it. So right. celebrate Diwali, celebrate Eid, celebrate Hanukkah, um, celebrate all of the possible holidays so that, and include everyone, it's mm -hmm. not just to say, okay, it's Hanukkah. There's the Jews holiday. We can, they're over there. It's say yeah. everyone can participate in Hanukkah. It's a fantastic yeah. celebration. Yeah. I enjoy it when those, when everybody uh, celebrates those different holidays within the office place. So that, you know, it, it's a lot of fun because you actually, you know, you're not just enjoying, you know, sometimes treats and food, but uh, you're learning new things you know, as well. Absolutely. I, I, I find it really exciting. You know, like, wow, I never knew that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's what it should be about, you know. The last one was a word I'd never heard before. And uh, you talk about it, and it is intersectionality. Yep. It's quite a mouthful, but <laughs> what on earth is that? <laughs> it is quite a mouthful, but it is an important word to consider. Now, I'm not going to go into the history of the word. You can read about that online or in my book. Um, Essentially, intersectionality is accepting that we're not one-dimensional characters. I am a gay man who lives with a disability. I'm white. Uh, I live in Canada. I speak English. All of those things are intersecting. And you can't separate them. So I'm not just a man. I'm not just white. I'm not just gay. I'm not, I don't just live with a disability. It's all at once. And the history of the term shows us that when those intersections happen, we can see higher levels of discrimination. Just as an example, they did a study that showed that um, Canadian-born men with a university education earned on average, I think it was about $62,000 median income. Foreign-born, so immigrant women without a university education earned on average about $18,000 a year. And throughout that study, they looked at that intersectional piece. Men and women, uh, Canadian-born versus foreign-born, and then university education without university education. And it's those intersections. If you look at uh, foreign-born men, they're making nearly as much as Canadian-born men. But when you apply with the university education, when you apply those intersections, you start to see uh, that life can get a little rougher for people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's important to take those intersections into consideration that we are not one-dimensional characters. I'll give you an example. So everyone talks about the LGBTQ2 plus community as one group, but we're not. There's a whole lot of intersections in there. I, as a white cisgender man, and very much part of the majority now. And yet queer, trans women of color are still experiencing significant issues of racism and discrimination, high levels of violence. So we're not all one big happy family. And that intersectionality lens, when it's applied, shows us that. 
Hmm. Now, I, I kind of know the answer to this question because it's in your book. So I'm really interested in hearing you, uh, what you're going to say about it. And I'm going to even use your own quote in your book. DNI, diversity and inclusion, is the right thing to do, isn't it? So I think it's the right thing to do. Alex, do you think it's the right thing to do? Oh, I, I'm not going to give the answer away to the book. You kind of <laughs> do that. <laughs> I, have a, I, I, I think it's the right thing to do, but I have a problem with that statement. And the problem with the statement is by saying it's the right thing to do, it assumes everyone thinks it's the right thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do to get the COVID vaccine. Not everyone thinks it's the right thing to do, as we have seen. Mm -hmm. The problem with falling, using that language is we fall into this trap of the social justice, moral imperative. And that is not enough motivation for most people. That's not something that gets people out of bed. And we need to get away from that moral imperative and focus, I believe, focus on what's good for our businesses and what's good for our communities. Well, doing, you know, doing what's right, sometimes doing what's right isn't for everybody, right? Because, well, if I do that, there's no benefit to me. You know, some people well, look at it that way, right? Absolutely. And it, and it always assumes that we all agree that it's the right thing to do. But we do not have that shared collective set of morals and values. If we did, there would no, be no penal system because no one would commit crime. There would be no hunger. There would be no homelessness because we would all work to elevate and help everyone. That's mm -hmm. socialism. And Canada and the United States are not socialist nations. No matter what you say, we are not socialist nations. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we are talking with Michael Bach, author of Birds of All Feathers, doing diversity right, diversity and inclusion right, sorry. And we'll be right back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you ready to hear from investors and get insight on different asset classes? Join host Troy Eckert for the program, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Troy works with high net worth investors and is ready to bring you the secrets he's learned in his 35 years of alternative investment experience, along with his guest experts. If you want value, you'll need to listen in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Michael Bach, author of Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right. Uh, Michael, I got a question for you. Can you have diversity um, without inclusion and, or can you have inclusion without diversity? Are, I, I've talked to some people and I've read articles where they're just kind of joined together and they become the same thing. Is that true? It, it is not true that you, you automatically have one with the other. 
You can absolutely have diversity without inclusion and inclusion without diversity. Uh, I'll give you an example. Women make on average somewhere between 74 and 76 cents on the dollar compared to men doing the same or similar job. Is that inclusion? We still have 50% of our workforce is female, but they're making less. Hmm. That's a, an extreme example. The assumption is that when you have diversity, you have inclusion, but it's not accurate. You have to dig deep and understand if people are feeling included. And you do that through things like surveys and focus groups and one-on-one -on -one interviews to find out where the problem is. It doesn't tell you why there's a problem. I always say, it doesn't tell you why there's a fire, just where to point your hose. And you then have to dig in and understand what the problem is. And the problem might be discrimination, might be racism, sexism, homophobia. It might be a lack of systems or policies, but you need to dig in there to better understand it. If you don't have inclusion, you are not benefiting from the diversity. Is that um, one of the problems with some of the DNI initiatives right now is because you alluded to earlier, it's like a tick box. You know, yes. okay, we have 50% women, okay, tick. But then, as you just said, that doesn't mean they're included. There isn't proper Absolutely. inclusion there. Yeah, it, it, is, it is one of the biggest problems where um, people are looking at solely at representation. They're looking at their numbers and they think that that is the success factor. It's not. Look oh, at wow. your voluntary turnover. Look at your engagement scores through that demographic lens and see if you're seeing uh, inclusion. Well, how do you measure inclusion then? You might as well take that a step further. How, how do you yeah. know? Because I, I'm, I'm sure many of us um, listening and watching we've all at the end of the year, we get this, for lack of a better term, survey or, you know, report that we're supposed to yep. complete from our executive, you know, how do you feel, uh, you know, about this and that, you know, uh, but you know, if you put something bad there, your manager is going to come down, <laughs> you know, say somebody on my team said such and such, you know, so a lot of people get afraid to actually give their real feelings. So how can you accurately measure that kind of a thing? Yeah, well, honesty in surveys is an industry problem, uh, cross-sectoral. Um, we hope that people are being honest in, in them. But essentially, you measure inclusion by looking at all of your talent KPIs. So you look at your engagement scores. You might conduct an inclusion survey. Um, you look at your voluntary turnover, your involuntary turnover, your performance ratings, uh, your promotions, and you apply a demographic lens. So looking at your promotions, how many of those people were women and how many were men, just using binary uh, sex at that point. When you look at your performance ratings, are people of color on average getting the same or similar performance ratings compared to white people? Um, you look at your voluntary turnover and see if more people with disabilities are leaving the organization at a higher rate or a lower rate. You just look at the same KPIs that you look at for everything else, but you apply that demographic lens. Mm. You then can dig in deeper with focus groups and one-on-one -on -one interviews to find out why there's a problem. But until you know where the problem is, you don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. Okay. There was something else you mentioned in the book that I thought was rather interesting. And to be honest, I thought this was a real thing because it's in the news. There are articles published about it. Um, I, I've seen it on TV, and that was, uh, can you explain what's meant by reverse discrimination? Is that real? Yeah, so that's the question. So the concept <laughs> is that reverse discrimination is discrimination experienced by people who are part of the majority, meaning by white people in the North American context, and this is important, experienced by white people, by men, by able-bodied people, by straight people, et cetera. It's not real. It's just discrimination. It is possible to discriminate against a person because they're white. It's possible to discriminate against a person because they're a man. It's just discrimination. And I think 
the, and I don't know the history of the term, actually. I don't know where it comes from. I don't think anybody does. But when it came up, it, I assume it was because someone who was white, male, able-bodied, straight, felt they were being discriminated against. And they probably were. Mm-hmm. But of course, they can't be part of that minority, part of the marginalized community. They can't acknowledge that. So they came up with a new term. I will tell you that when my book came out, it came out last year in 2020, and there was a large media organization, I will not say their name, who told my publicist that they couldn't have me on because I was a white man. That's discrimination. I was discriminated against. I understand why. George Floyd was killed in May of 2020. We were at the at the very beginning of the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement really uh, blowing up. And this organization really felt strongly that if we to talk about diversity and inclusion, they needed people of color. There are not enough people of color in Canada, at least there are not enough people of color doing this work. That's just reality. And yet they chose to discriminate against me um, to not have me on their shows. I'm not complaining. Please understand. I'm just saying that that is an example of discrimination. It's not reverse discrimination. I was discriminated against. I just happened to understand the circumstances and kind of shrug it off and say, okay, well, that's fine. Yeah, after reading that part in your book, I kind of reverse discrimination, reverses to back up. So does that mean there's no discrimination? You know, like, the, the term doesn't make sense, you know, and that, that got me it thinking, going, I don't really understand this. Discrimination is discrimination, as you described, regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also talk, <clears throat> excuse me, you also talk about two models of DNI. And the first one is the social justice model. What is that? And can you provide some examples? Yeah, the, the social justice model stems from the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s, um, where in essence, a straight, white, able-bodied man had to lose in order for someone else to gain. It was very much a zero-sum game. And it requires those straight, white, able-bodied men to surrender power willingly. And it's never worked. It's not a model that has ever worked. And it's not a model that I I believe is ever going to work. Because again, it requires people to give up power willingly. And I think it is imperative if we really want to see the change that we shift our focus to the model that I talk about, which is creativity and innovation. Mm -hmm. We are living in a rapidly changing society. The amount of data on the planet doubles. I don't know what the current statistic is, but the last time I checked, it was every six months. It's massive. And what's happening is we're being presented with problems, challenges, issues. Look at COVID. We got presented with the mother of all challenges. Oh, yeah. And, and what we need is solutions to those challenges. The means to get to that is diversity and inclusion. The solution is not diversity and inclusion. Solution is the, is the solutions to the problems. But how we get there is by having diversity of thought. We have people at the table who think differently, who approach problems differently, who bring different perspectives to the situation. And we create space where all those people can do their best work. And ultimately, we end up with some pretty amazing solutions. There's a bit of a famous story of um, Boeing when they were creating the Dreamliner not the 737. Um, And they famously brought together different teams from legacy companies and different departments and people of different personal characteristic diversity. And the team that they put together, and they've 
attributed this, the team that they put together to develop the wing, if you've ever seen it, it goes on a swoop at the end. They attribute the design of that wing to the diversity of the team that developed it because it is the most fuel efficient wing in the history of aviation. Diversity didn't solve the problem, but the diversity of people came up with the solution. I wish other organizations could do that. Imagine what they could achieve, what we could achieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. So why do we, why is it then there's so much focus on the, you know, the visual? It's easy to count. It's easy to tick a box. Um, People are looking for easy wins. The number of, yeah, it it is, um, it's very typical for organizations. They want the quick fix. They, you know, when George Floyd was killed, the number of phone calls that I got said, oh, we need anti-racism training and we need it in 60 minutes. Well, it took us a few hundred years to get to this fevered pitch of racism. I feel like it's going to take more than 60 minutes to fix the situation. But they wanted the instant fix. They didn't want it to necessarily impact their productivity. They wanted something quick to solve a problem. But racism is a systemic issue. So it, you know, it's one of those things that we're just looking for the quick fix, but we don't understand the root of the problem. Uh, maybe it's because it gives the appearance right off the bat that, oh, see, my organization's doing something. Absolutely. And then when the, when the attention goes away to another priority, uh, see, we, we, we did all that racism training and you know, all this stuff, so we're fine now. But to, as you just said, it's systemic. You've got to go much for, you know, much deeper than just, uh, you know, putting a shiny new uh, pink gloss on something and saying, there you go. You know? Absolutely. Now, I said uh, in the beginning of the first segment, we're going to talk about business case. Now, this was something interesting when you you talked about it in your book, too. Exactly what is a DNI business case? And can you tell us about it? Who's involved? What it should contain? you know, all the, the different aspects, because I thought this was rather interesting, and I hope a lot of people pay attention to this. Sure, it's pretty simple, Alex. It's what's the purpose? Why does it matter? It answers the why question. And every organization should have a business case. The business case has not been proven. I could give you a dozen examples of how the business case has not been proven. Um, and every organization needs to understand why is this a business priority? Why does this impact your business? This is getting away from the right thing to do to say it's about people, it's about customers, it's about our brand. And that's the three things that your business case must include is those three stakeholder groups. Your people, who do you hire, who do you fire, who do you retain, who do you promote? Your customers, who do you sell to? And everybody has a customer in some way, shape or form, regardless of what business you're in. If you're a municipality, your customer is the residents of your community. For a hospital, your customer is your patient. If you're a university, your customer is your student. So who are your customers? And are you serving your customers? And then your brand, and your brand is not just your logo. It's how you are perceived in the market, which ultimately impacts your customers and your people. Because if you are known as an exclusionary employer, then people will not come to work for you. People will not do business with you. Organizations that are um, knowingly homophobic or transphobic, they don't attract LGBTQ2 plus people as customers or as employees. Well, you're missing out on roughly eight to 10% of the population. Um, So your business case needs to speak your language as an organization and explain very simply why this matters. How is it going to impact your top and bottom line if you don't do something and if you do? Who writes that? Who puts it together? Who, and actually who owns DNI together? You know, is this something that you bring a team together to, to put together and hand it to, to who? The CEO? President? Yeah, so I'm going to add the word should into your sentence. Who should own it and who should write it? 
ultimately it should be owned and written by the top of the house. Hmm. Because of course, if it doesn't matter to your CEO, it doesn't matter to the organization. And so ultimately it should be a top down ownership and drive. Um, Oftentimes it gets relegated to some manager in HR who has no authority. They're doing it because either they were told to or they're passionate about it. And I have often said that diversity and inclusion that lives in HR dies in HR. (laughs) Because if it's a program and we have, say, the highest inflation that we've seen in 20 years, then if there are cuts, imagine what gets cut. Whereas if it's your CEO, uh, your CFO, someone at the C-suite who is driving the initiative, who understands the business imperative, then there's no cut to it because we recognize that this is about the success of the organization. Is the, if it's coming from top down, is the business case for DNI can it be equated to a policy? Ooh, I would never equate it to a policy. It's more of a way of thinking. It's more of a philosophy. I like to think of it as layering on top of the organization. So it layers on top of everything you do. There is a people component to it. There is a marketing and communications component, but there's facilities, there's technology, there's uh, suppliers, and it just layers over top what you do as an organization. It has to align with your strategic priorities and your business priorities as an organization. Absolutely. Um, and, I'm ass- and I'm assuming culture has to be a part of that. Sure. Because yeah. if you don't have the culture that supports that kind of initiative, uh, as you said, it, it will fail. Very much so. On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking today with Michael Bach, author of Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right, and we will be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Michael Bach, author of Birds of All Feathers, Doing Diversity and Inclusion Right. Uh, Michael, lots of great information uh, and that you've been providing here. I hope people are really paying attention. Let's say you've got the business case done. It's uh, quote unquote implemented and you're working on various initiatives. How do you measure the success of DNI? Yeah. Measurement is really important. It is 
how you pr prove your success, how you prove the, the return on investment. And there's a lot of different things you can measure depending on who you are as an organization. And I talked about some of them uh, previously, those, those people KPIs. So looking at your demographics, that representation, and I would always encourage you to look beyond the visible to mm -hmm. include other aspects of diversity that are not visible. So is your population, your employee population, commensurate with available talent? So do you have enough women? Do you have enough people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQ2 plus peoples, Native Americans and indigenous peoples, et cetera, all of those buckets. That is a representation, but at least it gives you a sense of how you're doing. And you have to compare that to available talent. And that's a Im very important sentence. So as an example, 92% of nursing degrees go to women. If I go to a hospital and I see 50% of the nurses are men, something is out of line. It's not commensurate with available talent. Conversely, only 25% of engineering degrees go to women. Same thing. If I go into an engineering firm and I see a whole lot of women, something is out of line. So it has to be in line with available talent because that's what you have. I could do a whole segment on how we need to diversify the pipeline. We don't have time for that. Um, so measuring your representation is one piece. Then there's measuring inclusion. So it's conducting surveys with your people to make sure you understand how they feel, focus groups, one-on-one -on -one interviews. It's looking at your data, understanding what's your voluntary turnover look like, your involuntary turnover. Is there an imbalance of some kind? Um, it is looking at, you can even go into things like your supply chain. You know, who are your suppliers and how do they identify? Are you only buying from really, really big businesses or are you supporting the economy by buying from women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses? Um, measurement is critically important to understand how you are, uh, how you are moving along. And every initiative, should have some form of, an, of measurement attached to it. So if you roll out a training program, how many people attend it? Do you conduct a survey before and after to understand if there is a change in their perspective? If you roll out a recruiting program into a particular community, what do the results look like? You just gotta keep measuring to understand if you're being successful. And if you're not achieving your goals, you need to revisit them. We, you just said something interesting there. Keep measuring. How long do you measure? How often do you measure? And who does that measuring? Because we, we spoke about earlier, sometimes when you have these surveys, it, it, they, they, they're coming out from marketing or uh, HR sometimes. And if I'm responding, let's say, I don't want HR to know what my responses are. They say things are confidential and people don't see them, but someone does. You know, it, inevitably somebody does. So how can you measure that accurately? How often? And do you have goals already set? You know, in, in the business case, we need 50% uh, men, 50% women, just to simplify the argument. Yep. You know, yep. And do you stop measuring that after you've reached 50%? Yeah. So how often do you measure? You measure perpetually. You'll never stop measuring. Because diversity and inclusion is not something that is going to stop. There's a famous instance of Salesforce did a pay equity audit, and they discovered that they had a significant imbalance of how women were paid compared to men. So they corrected everyone's salaries. And then six months later, they did another pay equity audit, expecting that everything would be fine. It wasn't. It shifts all the time. So you have to keep measuring. Mm. And... Um, it's, this is not, you know, I describe diversity and inclusion as a destination, or excuse me, a journey without a destination. You're not actually going anywhere. You're just going. And so it is imperative to not think of, of this work as a program um, because it doesn't have an end. Um, who measures? It depends. You know, that can be done by HR. It can be done by the C-suite. In an organization, I say, in an organization of more than 2,500 people, you must have a full-time resource dedicated to this work. Because otherwise, you're not going to get a lot done. Mm -hmm. um, and the bigger you are, the more people you have on this. And the more senior people you have on this. Um, and ultimately, it should be their responsibility 
to do the measurement, to understand how you're making progress. You revisit your goals on a regular basis. What are you trying to get to? So uh, let's say that you're an accounting firm. I'm going to use them as an example specifically. And let's say that at the intake of, because everyone comes out of university into accounting firms, uh, you got 50% men and 50% women, which it's actually more like 60, 40, 60% women in in, uh, accounting programs in universities. But let's say it's 50, 50. And then you look at the partnership and the partnership is only 25% women. Your measurement is how long are you retaining those women at the junior ranks and working them towards partnership? And you are perpetually looking at because ultimately women have been graduating with more than 50% of finance and commerce degrees since the early 90s. If that's the case, the partnership should be at this point in in time more than 50% women. There is no large accounting firm in North America that has 50% women in the partnership. So something's wrong. There's an imbalance. Women are leaving at a higher rate than men. And therefore, you need to measure your voluntary turnover. Where are they leaving? Why are they leaving? How can we, how can we stem that tide? Because ultimately, as I've always said, if I look at something like voluntary turnover rates and women are leaving at the same rate as men, it's not a diversity problem. It's a people problem, and that's another department. But if women are leaving at a higher rate, if people of color are leaving at a higher rate, that's where it becomes a diversity problem. It actually becomes an inclusion problem. And that's where I have to step in. So you get the HR team, you get some group measuring and, and looking at this constantly because it's a, it is a very fine balance and understanding that the downfall to diversity and inclusion is people. And every time you add a new person into the organization, you change the culture. And that person can become, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the uh, one bad apple that spoils the broth. Apples are in broth? I think that's a thing. Um, <laughs> I know what you meant. <laughs> you know what I meant. Yeah. And they can totally take you backwards. If the CEO mm-hmm. changes and the former CEO is a big proponent of, of, say, the advancement of people of color, but the new CEO isn't bought in, well, then you can just, you're completely undoing things. So it is a constant battle. Hmm. Interesting. We've only got uh, <clears throat> about five, four and a half minutes left. Um, what can get quickly, what can get in the way of a good DNI initiative? It's self-interest. And self-interest takes a variety of forms. There can be organizational self-interest, there can be community self-interest, and there can be individual self-interest. So individual self-interest, it's me, me, me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, as a diversity inclusion practitioner, a gay man with a disability, I could have only focused on the LGBTQ2 plus communities and people with disabilities, but I had to focus on women and people of color and other marginalized and underrepresented communities. I couldn't let my self-interest get in the way. That often isn't the case. Community self-interest can be exactly what it sounds like. It's the self-interest of a community where we only look at it through the lens of, say, the Black community or uh, the, um, I don't know, the Muslim community. We have to work together on this. And organizational self-interest, again, is exactly what it sounds like. It's where an organization puts its own self-interest above anything else. And that often comes out in how much money we're making. But what we don't understand is that we can make more money and we can reduce our expenses. So top line goes up, bottom line goes down by having a more diverse and inclusive workplace. And that only makes sense, too, because if you're embracing and being more inclusive, not just within your organization or community, but you're attracting more people to want to come to you to make you even more successful, right? I'll give you one example in the last couple of minutes that we have. So the average salary of a cab driver is about $24,000. We bring in the United States and Canada, hundreds of thousands. In fact, the U S it's a million people every year from other countries. Now let's say we bring a person from say Nigeria, who is a brain surgeon, neurosurgeon, 
and they're driving a cab, $24,000 a year, they're paying about $4,000 in income tax. If they were working in medicine as a neurosurgeon, and I pretty much, I think the brain in, in Nigeria works the same as it does here in North America, but if they were able to work in, as a neurosurgeon, they'd be making about $350,000 and paying about $42,000 in tax. That's 10 times the amount of tax that goes to roads, education, healthcare. It means that that person has more money to spend. So they're stimulating the economy more and we all gain from that. Mm -hmm. But have you ever met a brain surgeon from Nigeria in either Canada or the United States? They're few and far between because they have to come to our country and they have to retrain completely we need to eliminate those barriers. And that's where everyone benefits, not just an organization, not just an individual, but society as a whole. Yeah, I agree with that. I've always had an issue with, you know, a doctor using your example from Nigeria coming to Canada. Well, okay, maybe a, a month or two, a refresher or something, see where they are. But Absolutely. Why all of a sudden can't they become a doctor? That, you know, as you said, the brain is the same, you know, it's the same around the world. We're all human. So yep. I don't understand that. Well, we've come to the end of the show. Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your uh, time and ideas and thoughts in your book. Congratulations. It was, it was a real eye opener for me because there were some things that I've heard about diversity. I see in the news or, or read about that you really broke down to uh, make sense. You know, and you gave some uh, a lot of great examples here and cleared up actually some confusions that I had uh, about the topic. And so I'm really, really glad to have you on the show and happy that you cleared it all up for me. And I hope a lot of people that are listening and watching. It's my pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And congratulations on the book once again. Uh, I do recommend it for everybody. Birds of, a, birds of all feathers doing diversity and inclusion right. There's a lot of humor in there. And by the way, there is a chocolate bar that has blueberries. It's uh, made in England, by the way. I must have. Yeah, because Michael mentions that in his book that he wishes it was done. And I've had it. It's I think it's made in, made in England only, and it's only for sale in England. Uh, Cad, Cadbury's, I believe, makes it. I've had it. No, so. I'm going to go find it now. See, see, now you know I really did read the book. <laughs> so thank you once again, Michael. I really appreciate thank it. You. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.